Welcome to Fort William Baptist Church Audio Sermons. We're so glad you could join with us today. This fall, we have begun a new sermon series called Soteriology. During this series, we will aim to unpack how our God applies salvation to sinful men and women. We are returning to the great doctrines of a sustained and refreshed Christ Church since the days of the Apostles. With the great works of God before us, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification, our hearts will be stirred up to hunger more of the work of God. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 12 and 13. So we're in this series called Soteriology. We're moving through these doctrines of salvation, how God saves us. And this morning we're looking at the doctrine of progressive sanctification. So let's listen to God's good word now. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Father, we do come to you and we pray. We use the words of the psalmist. My soul clings to the dust. That's who we are. We're dust clingers. And we pray, give us life according to your word. Would you do that now with these two verses? Give us life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been in the series on salvation for a bit of time. And the verse that keeps coming to to mind for me is Psalm 130, verse 7. The psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with the Lord there is plentiful redemption. And so week after week, we have been studying God's salvation, how he saves us, and what we've been doing is we've been returning to the the wells of, of salvation, and as we've returned to the wells of salvation, we have found enough. In fact, we can say we have found more than enough. We have found plentiful redemption. What the psalmist says is true. With the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. Just think about it with me. When we were living far away from God, what did God do for us? Well, he he called us, he summoned us into his presence. And not only did he summon us, but he gave us a new heart, a heart heart of repentance, a heart that's turned towards him. When we were dead in our sin, what did God do for us? Well, he came to us and he, he made us alive. We were dead and then we were alive. And then he gave us faith so that we might live forever in his son. When we were hopelessly lost in our sins, what did God do for us? Well, he, he forgave us of our sins, every single sin forgiven for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then he, he covered us with the righteous garments of Jesus. Even more, he drew us near into his family and he's looked at upon each one of us in the gospel and has said, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I love you. 
Last week when we were enslaved to sin, we learned this. God set us free, and he set us free through the death and resurrection of his son. And so we can say with the psalmist, with him there is plentiful redemption. And so as we're studying, as we're hearing God's word, we have to remember we're not dealing with table scraps here. We're not dealing with cold leftovers from last night's meal. No, as we are sitting down and as we are studying the salvation, what is happening is that God is drawing us up into the heavenly places. And he sits us down at this great banquet table and he has put on this table in front of us the glorious gospel of grace. And he bids us to, to feast upon this gospel. Come and eat, come and partake. And this is what we get to do this morning again. <laughs> We get invited, we get drawn up into the heavenly places and God is seating us and he is putting in front of us this glorious gospel and he bids us, won't you come, won't you partake again? So let's eat together and we can start our work by starting with Jesus. So let's think about Jesus together. I have a question for you. What made Jesus so unique? What made Jesus so unique? So we're thinking about Jesus during his earthly ministry. Well, we can point to all sorts of things that make Jesus unique, especially, specifically his deeds. Just think of the things that Jesus did. We don't see these kind of things happening. Jesus spoke and the storm stopped. Jesus spoke and demons cowered and ran away. Jesus spoke and people were healed. Jesus spoke and loaves and fish were multiplied. That's pretty unique. That doesn't happen every day. While these deeds are stunning, I think there's something more foundational to the uniqueness of Jesus, and I think it's this, his moral purity. So just think about this with me. We can point to many workers of miracles. For example, we can point to Moses, we can point to Elijah, but who can we point to for never saying a rash word? Think about human history. Can we point to any man, any woman who never spoke a rash word? No, we can't. Except for Jesus. We can point to many people who have done great things in the power of the Spirit. We see it in the Gospels. There are Jesus' disciples and there they are going out and casting out demons. They're healing people. But can we point to a person who has never operated out of envy? We can point to many mighty men of God. We can point to David. We can point to his son Solomon. But can we point to someone who has never lusted after a woman, not even once, not even for a second? We can point to many who endured much for the Lord, men like Jeremiah, men like Isaiah. Can we point to anyone who never grumbled against the Lord? We can point to many people who who carried on the work of the Lord with bravery in the face of opposition. We can think of men like Joshua, men like Nehemiah, but who can we point to who never once sinned against the Lord? And this is the great wonder of Jesus Christ. A man who came into this world, into the muck and mire of our situation. A man who met every single temptation that we have faced. A man who is shared in all of our our troubles. A man who shares in our flesh, our blood, our bones. But yet remain, as the author of Hebrews says, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And this is where we can see the great difference between us and Jesus. Jesus is characterized by these words. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. 
But what words describe us? We can do some accounting of our own lives. Look at your hands. Consider all the things that your hands have done throughout your life. Think about your tongues. Remember all the words you have spoken. And we don't have to remember too long ago. Just remember the words you have spoken today or even this week. Probe your heart. Go down there and start looking at your allegiances and your alliances, your attachments. Consider your eyes. What have you been placing in front of your eyes this week that your soul has been gazing upon, been looking at? Well, what's the result of all this accounting as we consider ourselves? Well, none of us, none of us would dare to use these words to describe ourselves. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. These words don't fit us. And here's the problem that we all face, and this is true for those of us who have experienced salvation for Christians. We've experienced God's mighty works in our lives, and here is our problem. We still don't look like Jesus. We can think about this as practically as possible. We still don't think like Jesus. We still don't love like Jesus. We still don't speak like Jesus. We still don't act like Jesus. And it's evident in all sorts of all parts of our lives. And so what does the gospel have to say about this? What does the gospel do for us? Well, there is good news. The gospel is this. God is at work, even right now, to make us resemble the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we get to think about this in the most practical terms possible. What God is doing, this, this work that he's carrying on, has to do with our hearts what we love and what we hate, our hands, what we do with them, what we don't do them, with our eyes, what we look at, what we don't look at, our mouths, what we speak and what we, what we say. And this is what the doctrine of progressive sanctification is all about. And so I want to give you a definition. Progressive sanctification is a doctrine that describes God's ongoing work in our lives where he continually changes us from one degree of glory unto another with the practical result that we actually have the will and the ability to carry out a new obedience aimed at the glory of God. So there are a few things we need to make sure we pick out of that definition. Progressive sanctification is God's ongoing work. God is working right now. And what is he doing? Well, it's a progressive work. It's a work that grows and increases from one glory to another glory. God is moving us somewhere in this life, and there's practical results, and the practical results is this. We actually learn new forms of obedience. Where we didn't obey before, now we're learning to obey here and here and, and here. And we can shorten this whole definition up. Here's a mini definition for you. God saves sinners, and we ask, well, how does God save sinners? Well, he saves sinners by changing us to be more like Jesus. Or we could just say, God saves sinners by, by changing us. He's the God who changes people. So we want to see how this works, and we're going to see how it works as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And so this is a rather simple text to, to outline and digest. There's, there's two chunks in this text. There's verse 12 and there's verse 13. In verse 12, there's a command. Paul says, work out your own salvation. Then in verse 13, there's an explanation. Paul is giving us understanding, he says, for it is God who works in you. 
And so our plan this morning is really simple for this sermon. We've got two chunks in our text, and we're going to have two chunks to this sermon. We're going to look at the command that Paul gives us, and then we're going to look at his explanation and see how this all works together for our, our good. So let's look at the command. So Paul writes, he says, verse 12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Just sit on those words for a bit. Work out your own salvation. Those are provocative words, aren't they? Especially if you, if you know the gospel. Work out your own salvation. These are words that, that grab our attention. They wake us up and that's good for us because sometimes we just sleepwalk through when we read our Bibles. So we ask Paul, well, what do you mean work out our own salvation? There are a couple of dead ends that we have to avoid as we try to sort out Paul's words here. The first dead end that we have to avoid is this. Paul is not commanding us to go earn our salvation. This would be a contradiction of the gospel. Paul has taught us the gospel before. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul's really clear there. We don't earn our salvation. The salvation is a gift. It's grace. And it's received by faith, a a non-work. So whatever Paul means by work out your own salvation, he's not saying go earn your salvation. There's another dead end we have to avoid. Paul is not commanding us to work at our salvation. So think about it like this. The salvation that God has given to us isn't a shabby salvation. It isn't a a fixer-upper that needs some help and some TLC. No, this salvation that God has given us is the very glory and wisdom of God. There are no improvements that can be made upon this salvation. It is God's and we cannot add anything to it. So Paul says, work out your own salvation. And we ask, what do you mean, Paul? We get a clue when we start to broaden out our gaze. Let's read all of verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul's writing to this congregation. And what he does in verse 12 is he begins by affirming this people. He says to them, you have obeyed. I know it. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've tasted your obedience for years now. And he's got a desire for this congregation. He's been separated from them. He's no longer with them. That's why he's writing this letter. And because he's separated with them, he has this desire that they would what? They would continue on in their obedience. They're known for their obedience, and Paul's desire is that they would continue to be known for their obedience. Or in other words, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So from verse 12, we can see to work out your own salvation is to continue the work of obedience. And this thought gets even clearer as we broaden out our gaze even more and look at the whole of chapter 2, because chapter 2 is an argument Paul is making an argument here as he's writing to these people, and he begins his argument in verses 2 and 4. What's the focus here? Listen. Paul writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
So that's Paul's concern as he starts his argument. Then we've got our text, verses 12 and 13, and then we've got verses 14 and 15. Look there with me. This is how Paul is starting to conclude his argument. He says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So our verses are caught up in this argument. Paul says, work out your own salvation. We ask, well, what does this mean? Well, we can see that Paul has something really practical in mind. It has to do with our hearts. We work out our own salvation when we do what? When we put on humility and we cast aside selfish ambition. It has to do with our our tongues. We work out our salvation when we stop grumbling and we stop disputing and fighting with each other. It has to do with our hands and our feet. We work out our salvation when we begin to look look at the interests of others before our own interests, when we start to value others, and then we start to meet other people's needs. So Paul's giving us clarity here, and this is good. We have to see that the salvation that, that has been purchased for us by the blood of Jesus, that has been applied to us by the Holy Spirit, is not some otherworldly reality, some odd salvation that has nothing to do with our lives right here, right now. No, it's clear as Paul's writing about this salvation, that it's this, that we begin to think like and act like and even begin to look like Jesus himself in the right here, the right now of our lives. And so as we look at verse 12, the scriptures come to each one of us with a command. It's a very simple command. The scriptures say this, go on, get at it, get to work, carry out this salvation, put into action your salvation, live out your salvation. And so this doctrine of progressive sanctification is a doctrine that comes with commands. It's a doctrine that that pushes us to actually do something. And we can test ourselves. We can test our doctrinal knowledge. Do you really understand progressive sanctification? Well, you can just look at your hands. You can look at your feet. You can consider your eyes and your heart. You can gauge your understanding by what you're actually doing with your life. But there's more here. Paul says, work out your own salvation with what? With fear and trembling. So Paul tacks on this little odd phrase to the end of this command. We get the command, work out your salvation. We need to live out this life of obedience. But we ask Paul, well, why would I tremble as I obey? That's odd. Why would I fear as I put into practice this salvation that you've graciously given to me? Why are you using these words, Paul? And here I think we are met with the most profound application Our work, that is to say, our obedience is done in the presence of someone. What Paul has in mind here as he's writing about obedience for the Christian is not some abstract law code or some giant rule book that has fallen out from the heavenly places. For Paul, this this new obedience is not this this strict rule-keeping idea. Why? Well, lists of rules, books of codes, reams of commandments, abstract regulations, they don't do what? They don't make a man tremble and fear. What Paul is ultimately telling us is this, our lives are lived in the presence of someone and we fear and we tremble because the one we live before is incredibly great. So Paul wants to describe this person we live before and he does it right above our passage. 
This person we live before is the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This one we live before is the one who humbled himself by submitting to a death on a shameful cross. This one we live before is the one that God raised from the dead. He's the one that God has highly exalted. This one we live before has received the name that is above every name. He is the one before whom all will bow in, in, in the earth and under the earth and wherever you happen to be. To this man, you're going to swear allegiance saying, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's why Paul uses these words, trembling and fear. Because we're carrying out this new obedience. We're living before King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's this Jesus, this exalted, this glorious Jesus that has come to us in the gospel and has called for our hearts and our hands and our our tongues. This is the secret to Paul's obedience. It's a life lived before Jesus. It's a life with, with eyes set upon Christ. It's a life knowing we're in the presence of Christ. And so this adds infinite weight to Paul's command. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. So it's clear. In verse 12, we've got something to do. We've got to get on with this work of obedience. But Paul keeps writing. He's got more to say to us. Verse 13. Paul says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So verse 13 is an explanation. That's what Paul's doing. And to be precise, it's a a theological explanation. Paul has just talked about our work. He wants to relate our work to what? To God's work. And as theologians, we're like, oh, how does this work? We've got our work and God's work. How do they connect? How do they overlap? What's the connection? And so there's a lot of theology at work here. But I think there's even something else going on here. It's just not a theological explanation. This is ultimately a practical application, explanation. Because in these words, Paul's actually dealing with our hearts. And I think this is where we we need to go. And this is how we have to use this theology. We have to apply it to our hearts. So think about how this is working. Paul has come to us in verse 12, and he's hammered us with a command. He says, work out your own salvation. Get to work. And then he's added weight to this. He said, do it with fear and trembling. Why? Because you're living in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't forget it. So we need to ask, well, how do we react to that? Well, I think our hearts run in a few different directions, and we need to consider a few of them. So we hear Paul's writing in verse 12, and what happens? Well, our hearts begin to run in the direction of weariness. So the tired Christian reads verse 12 and is overcome with what? A feeling of fatigue. The tired Christian says, this might be going on in your mind, there is much to do. There's so much I have to get done. There's so much demanded of me in this Christian religion. And my heart, my will, my energy is not going to get it done. God is demanding this from me and I only have this much. And so the tired Christian does what? The tired Christian reads this verse, verse 12, and walks away with a fresh feeling of defeat. I just can't get it done. Our hearts run in a different direction too as well. We run in the direction of pride. So the proud Christian reads verse 12 and doesn't hesitate for a second. 
This person, his conscience doesn't twinge or have a a moment of regret. This person is is pleased with their performance. And in fact, if you you could dig into their soul and start excavating there, what you would find is a person who is really quite happy with their performance of the Christian life. I'm doing well. I've got it together. This verse doesn't really do anything. In fact, it makes me feel really good about myself. And there's a third reaction. We run in the direction of boredom. So there's verse 12, and the bored, bored Christian reads the verse. What does the bored Christian say? It's just another command. There are hundreds of commands in the New Testament. What's different about this one? There's nothing to think about here. There's nothing to meditate. There's nothing to be concerned about. There's nothing to be amazed by. There's no awe here for my soul. And so what does the bored Christian do? He or she just reads verse 12 and moves on. So what does Paul have to say to each one of these Christians? Better yet, we can ask, what does Paul have to say to you this morning as you're dealing with verse 12? Well, to the defeated Christian, to the weary Christian, Paul says this. Listen to what Paul says. He says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Are you weary today? Are you tired? Are you fatigued in the Christian life? Can you hear the good news for your soul in that verse? Because there is good news for you. Paul wants you to understand this. You need to know this. It is God who works in you. Hear this truth. There's never a moment in your life post-conversion that you are left to your own resources. That is good news. God calls you. God calls you to be born again. And God is never going to leave you in this whole process of salvation, not for a single second, not for a single moment. There is never a moment in your life that you're left to your own resources. And this frames the way we think about the whole Christian religion. This matter of obedience that Jesus has called each one of us to is not a matter of drawing from the well of our own strength, our own resources, our own resolve. Rather, the whole Christian religion is the opposite. It's the matter of drawing upon the infinite reservoirs of God's strength, God's resolve, God's power. That's what Paul's saying to us. It is God who works in you. And because we know this truth about God and the Christian religion, we don't lose heart. Even when we're fatigued, even when we're tired, what do we say? Well, we ought to say with the psalmist, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And there's more application for the weary Christian. Just take note of what God does for you. Paul says this, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you're gonna live a life of obedience, what do you need in order to live a life of obedience? What do you need to get the job done? Well, the first thing you need is you need the will for obedience. You need a heart that says, I want to do that. You need a heart that says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to think that way. I'm going to live that way. I'm going to love that way. I desire that kind of life. I'm turning that way in the inside of my heart. And second, you need the actual ability to live out this new obedience. You need the energy. You need the strength to get this act of obedience done. You need the work to actually do the work. Do you hear what Paul is saying to you? He's saying this, dear weary Christian, God supplies both. He supplies you with the will and he supplies you with the work. Think about this. In this moment, even right now, if you are in Christ, God is working on your will. 
He's working on the very inside of you that determines what you love and what you hate. God is working there, changing what you love. Isn't that precious good news? Even more, God is giving you the strength and the resolve, the capacity to live out a new obedience. As you start to desire to do new things for God, to live in a way that pleases Him, He meets you as you walk, filling you with strength, filling you with grace that you might actually perform this obedience. We need to take all of this to heart. Because when we reckon with this verse, there is an overwhelming note of encouragement for us. Paul is saying something. In fact, he's preaching something. He's preaching a very simple message. He's saying this, dear Christian, dear weary, fatigued Christian, God is for you. You need to hear that God is for you. And he is so for you that he is in the business of giving you the will and the work to get all of this done. And so we cannot miss this point. We cannot overlook it. God is for you. So be encouraged, weary Christian. Paul also deals with the proud Christian. So we've got that man, that woman who's read verse 12 and is a bit puffed up about what he or she sees in life. And what does Paul say to the proud Christian? Well, he writes, he says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The same words that lift up the weak and encourage us in our fatigue are the same words that Paul applies to the proud. How does this work? Well, John Calvin in his commentary on the book of Philippians says this about this verse. He says, this verse teaches that we are utterly nothing and we can do nothing except through the grace of God alone. We are utterly nothing and we can do nothing except through the grace of God alone. Can you hear what he is saying? As we're wrestling with Paul's explanation, the word of God presses in upon us. There is nothing in the Christian life that we can take credit for. When we obey, when we love, when we set aside sin and when we pursue the Lord, we can never say to ourselves in a moment of reflection, wow, I have done this. I've done this by my own strength. I've accomplished this by my own power. Look at my ingenuity for the Lord. We are utterly nothing and can do nothing. And when we wrestle with Paul's explanation, it humbles us. And we need to be humbled. It's only the grace of God. It's only the grace of God. And so this verse is training us to cast down our accomplishments and to lift up and extol the grace of God in our lives. What I love about the Apostle Paul is he gives us concrete examples of how this actually works. So in Philippians chapter 2, these two verses we're looking at, Paul's giving us this theological understanding of God's grace in our lives. And what Paul does is he, he gives us a tangible expression of how this worked in his own life. So listen to Paul talk about his own experience of God's grace in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Let's think about those words. Paul talks about his work. He says, I worked harder than any of them. Here's a man who's giving more effort than anyone else. And we can verify this. You just read the scriptures, you read the book of Acts and all of his letters, and we read about Paul's labors. 
We read about his suffering, his, his travels, his church planning, his teaching and preaching. This man was a worker. He was a worker. But listen to what he says. What does Paul boast in? Does he boast in his labors? Does he boast in his suffering? Does he boast in his church planning efforts? Does he boast in his teaching or his preaching? No, he does not boast in any of these things. He boasts in what? The grace of God. And Paul is so thorough with the grace of God as he thinks about it in his life. What compelled his obedience? What drove him towards obedience? It was the grace of God. He says what? By the grace of God, I am what I am. How did I get here? God's grace. Even more, he says, his grace towards me was not in vain. His grace produced something in my life. Can't you see it? Can't you see it? Even more, he says, as he's thinking specifically about his work, what does he say? He says, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul's training us. This is how we deal with pride in the Christian life. Yes, we have to work. But as we work and as we think about our work, what do we do? We lift up the grace of God. We say, it is the grace of God that brought me here. And that grace was not in vain. And look at all these things that have happened. It is the grace of God, not me. And so we have to understand this. We are nothing and can do nothing except through the grace of God alone. Then we've got the board. And Paul says something to the board as well. He says this. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Out of all that we've talked about this morning, we've talked about the fatigued Christian, we've talked about the proud Christian, this is the worst disease of the soul to have, boredom. What happens when you're bored? When you're a bored Christian, you gloss over the miraculous. You begin to miss the glory of what's going on in the Word of God. In fact, what's going on in your own life. And what happens is this boredom infects us time and time again. But what is Paul doing here in verse 13? He has come to us this morning specifically to to wake us up. He does not want us slumbering and sleepwalking through the Christian life. And what does he say? He shouts in our ears. He says, God is at work in you. Brothers and sisters, it is imperative that we fight against boredom with everything we have in the Christian life. Consider what Paul is saying in verse 13. He is saying God is at work. Think about God. God, it is this God who created all things. Genesis chapter 1, he speaks and there it is. It is this God who appeared in the Exodus story, who split the Red Sea open, who appeared to Moses in a burning bush. It is this God who who worked for Joshua and made the sun stand still. It was this God who appeared in the life and ministry of Jesus, raising him from the dead. And what is Paul saying? It is this God who is at work even right now. And Paul pushes this right into us. Paul says, he is at work in you. This great, this big, this powerful, this glorious God has focused his attention upon the church and not only upon the church, but take this to heart, he has focused his attention upon you, Christian, upon you. Wonder about this. The God who redeemed the nations, the God who has flung stars into space, the God who overthrew death, what is he doing? He is now exerting his infinite power, his mighty energy, his strength in your life so that you might act like and think like and love like his beloved son 
So Paul says, wake up. Wake up. Paul is saying, take a look at your hands. This is something we can just do. Take a look at your hands, and you need to preach to yourself, God is at work in you. Take a look at your your feet and say, God is at work in you. Consider your tongue and say, God is at work in you. Consider your mind and say, God is at work in you. Consider your heart and say, God is at work in you. Consider everything about your being and preach the truth of the scriptures to yourself. God is at work in you. When you do this, this starts to change everything about the Christian life. Why? Because no act of obedience is ordinary. No act of obedience is ordinary. It doesn't matter how small or seemingly insignificant it is. It's not ordinary. Why? Because it has been brought about by God himself. This is God's work in you. And so when you have a desire, even a very mundane desire, you wake up in the morning and you, and you desire to read God's word, you should wonder at that. That is God's work in you, turning your heart to him. When you have a desire to reconcile with someone, be at wonder at what God is doing. Every act of obedience is the work of the miracle-working, miracle-producing God, and it is not ordinary. It should cause our hearts to wonder at the glory of God, that he's working in us. So brothers and sisters, where does this leave us this morning? The doctrine of progressive sanctification. Well, it comes with an urgent command. It says, get to work. Carry on this work of obedience. Don't be slack. Push on. And why do we need to push on? Because Paul gives us this glorious explanation of what God is up to. He is at work in us, giving us a new will and giving us the energy to get all of this done. So if you're weary, take heart. God is at work in you. If you're proud, be humbled because everything is from God. Seek his face. And if you're bored, wonder with amazement that God, the glorious God of the scriptures, is at work presently in you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we magnify your name this morning. You are a God who is at work in us. And so we rejoice. We pray, overcome our fatigue. Smash our pride. Cause us to worship. We need your help. And we trust that you're working in our hearts right now. Would you press your word into us and change us in this moment? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.